are listening to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about how we're thinking about who is informing the structure of the institutions that we participate or choose not to participate in, and how we as artists can encourage, force, help, push, catalyze a different kind of thinking around these structures, right? And how much of that work we want to do ourselves. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihoods since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 29th of November, 2022, with Gina Valentine. Gina Valentine is a mother, visual artist, and associate professor of print media at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Her practice is informed by traditional craft techniques and interweaves histories latent within found texts, objects, narratives, and spaces. Gina's work involves language translation, mining content from material and digital archives, and experimental strategies for humanizing data visualization. She is also co-founder with artist Heather Hart of Black Lunch Table, an oral history archiving project. Her work has received recognition and support from the Graham Foundation, Joan Mitchell Foundation, and Art Matters, among others. Gina received her BFA from Carnegie Mellon and her MFA from Stanford University. I met Gina Valentine at Oxbow School of the Arts in the summer of 2021. Although we agreed we looked familiar, and so we probably met one another, or at least saw one another, at the Black Artist Retreat. I spoke with Gina over Zoom while we were both at our homes. The audio quality for the season is varied, so remember that transcripts for all these conversations are available on the project website, thisthingwecallart.com. Our conversation was three hours and 15 minutes long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you about six minutes in. I'm interested in the Black Lunch Table. I'm really interested in, um, like, specifically this moment of transition, you know, stepping away um, as executive director is hiring a new executive director. I'm interested in that. So what is the Black Lunch Table? I'll give you the official the official line, and then I'll tell you more about it. Um, so the Black Lunch Table is based an oral history archiving project that was founded by two artists who do not have backgrounds in library sciences or oral history or art history. We're, we're just artists who felt that we didn't see ourselves in books when we were growing up. I wanted to like be Pablo Picasso or maybe like Andy Warhol when I was little because um, I didn't know. Um, because, you know, Faith Ringgold, for example, should have been part of what we were taught in our history, but not so much. Um, yeah, I could make it that list a whole lot longer, but um, I guess I can give you the origin story. So it started off as uh, an intervention in public space when Heather and I were at Skowhegan, um, I think. So we were in the sculpture quad, which is kind of dirty. We were notorious for having like the best parties. Um, and, um, we would like hang out and talk in our studios just about what we were doing and about life and um, pranks. But we also talked about uh, appearances and preconceptions about who we were. And I was really interested in how I am um, 
think what Tina Takamoto described me as in grad school was like a conspicuously othered person, conspicuously black person, like I look black, versus Heather, who is biracial and I mean, I can reflect me, but not to everybody, I guess, right? Um, but then we talked about like how we are expected to perform our blackness, right? Um, how are we expected to talk? That moment when you've talked to somebody over the phone for a long time and then they meet you in person, they're like, oh, she's black. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, anyway, so we also talked about um, you know, these spaces like black lunch tables and how we participated in them or didn't participate in them in different school settings um, and also how at Skowhegan, even though there were like a dozen of us that summer, we never all sat together. We liked each other, but we just never, there was no reason to make that happen. So we made it happen. And because we were young, uh, uh, we decided to do it by invitation based on who we determined was black. We got, we invited one person who did not identify as black and skipped one person. It was like, what the hell? <laughs> um, and so that lunch, it was all of us kind of crammed together at this little table. We invited the Dean, who was Steve Locke and the director who was Linda Earl and Whitfield LaFell was there that summer, and so he joined us too, but we just talked. Um, there wasn't like an agenda for that day, but we kind of just talked about all the things. Like I think um, Hank and I were gonna be in Frequency later that year, and we were just talking about how, you know, survey shows, if you have that on your resume, that automatically changes the whole character of your resume and the way that it's read, right? Um, People are like, do we show in February? Like all the shows are in February. Can we talk about that? <laughs> um, what else do we talk about? I think it was just good. And then, you know, of course there were all these conversations afterward because it was like during lunch and everybody else was sitting at all the other tables. <laughs> like, what is going on? Um, our white friends had some questions for us about, um, self-segregation and about um, pulling what they felt was kind of a stunt um, in a public space. But it did open up a conversation that I think needed to be had um, about those spaces and about inclusion and exclusion and choices made towards self-segregation and the purpose of the uh, Significance of affinity spaces, importance of affinity spaces. So let's see, we left and then Heather and I both went to grad school. I went to a couple of grad schools. Uh, when I was at CCA um, and Heather was at Rutgers, we staged like an intercollegiate black lunch table. So we had seven different schools, I think, with, you know, who had like two or three people in the grad program come together over like very early Skype for a video call where we would try to create this community. 2014, we hosted like our first like official roundtable event at the Black Artist Retreat in Chicago, Dorchester Projects, um, which, was kind of the model that 
they're in now. Um, so they curate people into tables and there's it's recorded and we give them question prompts and it's just artists talking to each other. Or for anyone listening who got to experience it in those first three years was like homecoming reunion, family reunion, and also conference all wrapped up into one. It's like all these folks that like you showed with or like you went to school with or had read about we're just there and having a party and kind of just loving <laughs> it's so good and then it changed into something that's not that anymore um let's see in 2015 we collaborated with my friend Hong An Chung who is uh, in North Carolina to produce our first people's table. Back then it was called the Black Lunch Table, Black Lives Matter, or Black Lives Matter, Black Lunch Table, one or the other. Um, and we wanted to bring together people from across the community in the Durham Chapel Hill area who we felt were invested in conversations or actions around Black Lives Matter. And that included activists in the community, artists, academics, um, High school students and teachers um it's like everybody's talking about this but in very different ways and we need to bring everyone together and so since then that's become what we now call the people's table which is another suite of tables um also around that time we started our wikipedia initiative which is now like wikimedia project um so recognized by the foundation um is one of a very small handful of projects that focus on um the lives of black folks uh yeah there's less than half a dozen um, projects like us um in the wikiverse um but this is our oh my gosh it's like eight years i think that we've been doing the wiki project but basically it when we were trying to figure out where we were going to house all the audio for these round tables we started looking at other larger archives and thinking about who was missing and thought, well, you know, Wikipedia is the most used encyclopedia in the world. Surely we must all be on there. And I am still constantly surprised by who is missing. For example, Fred Moten was missing until 2020. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fred Moten, Valerie Castle Oliver, Demetrius Oliver, Joshua Close. I mean, we have a very long list of folks that we have added in the past couple of years. So our project basically does what other wiki projects do, which is teach folks how to edit wiki. The majority, like, you know, 90% of people that engage with Wikipedia engage with it on a read-only basis. Um, so for the first step, it's like, hey, you can also contribute to this. Um, we also think about how we are shifting the demographic of editors. The vast majority of them are white. I mean, they're like between 22 and 40. So, like, how? <laughs> so, how do we? How do we? Through focusing on a particular subject matter, invite a different demographic to come and contribute. Because people, you know, they contribute with their time. That's it. You don't have to have any specialty knowledge. You just have to know how to research and know the general rules of adding content to Wikipedia. Um, and 
you know, there's a, there's a whole lot on Pokemon, World of Warcraft, World War Two. There's, you know, there's um, Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> there's a whole lot of black artists still missing. Anyway, so that project has been happening. Um, in 2019, we became a nonprofit, um, which meant that we did a lot of paperwork and filed with the government. And I know we have to do a whole lot more paperwork to continue to be a nonprofit. Um, but we hired a whole fleet of people. Now there's, including the proxies that we have that um, host wiki projects as BLT in other countries, mostly on the continent of Africa. I think there's about 20 folks on the team, uh, which includes uh, three directors. We just hired an executive director. Um, we have a small board and uh, some larger advisory council. Um, we have multi-year funding from folks like Mellon and Warhol and the Wikimedia Foundation. And Heather and I in the past year, I think realized that as much as we love this work, the administration is not the work that we love. And we're not the best people to do it. And I think it was really kind of heartbreaking for both of us because we're like, you know, we're caretakers, we are artists, we are faculty, we are tired. <laughs> and, but we are always like, we could make this work. We will do whatever we have to do. We will work all hours. And I think we just, we, it's impossible. Um, so we have had a really amazing nonprofit advisor for the past three years. Brooke Richie Babbage, give her a shout out. If you need help, call Brooke. She's got templates for everything. Um, she, we worked with her through the process of, you know, of letting go, but also of uh, conducting a nine-month search um, for, for an ED. And we had a lot of really amazing people who applied and were interested. And ultimately, we went with uh, Yola Stance, who comes to us from the National Park Service, a cultural division within it. One of her recommenders, the question was, can you speak to the candidates' weaknesses, uh, particularly in the area of communication? And after a pause, the recommender said, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just not familiar with Yola's weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best response I have ever gotten from anybody um, giving you know, a recommendation for a candidate. And she is amazing. She's um, the youngest of eight children and a mother of three boys and is finishing her PhD and is like on boards and councils and has um, just killing it so far as his months do for her. And so we have a little bit of overlap as she's getting her feet under her. It's all good. I think Heather and I are excited to go and be just, you know, art makers. We're, you know, we've got like soft date for getting together and talking about other art that we can make that maybe doesn't require so much paperwork. I feel like um, I read somewhere, um, We've always cultivated Black Lunch Table with the intention of creating a legacy project, one that would outlive us and foster discourse, yeah. uh, fill holes in art historical canons, and 
inspire creative production beyond that which we could ever imagine. Could you kind of speak to, yeah, like understanding this project as like a legacy project? I think collaboration is maybe at the root of the legacy part. Um, I had never really been a collaborator until I had a child. And I realized that my child was actually taking up more than half of my brain. So I needed other brains <laughs> to work with and I needed other people to hold me accountable because I was so exhausted for good three years. <laughs> um, but to have people who you know, I met with to continue developing this thing and I think BLT in its present iteration you know, kind of was born during that time also. Um, but yeah, collaboration is, you know, part admitting that you don't know everything, that there are ways that your ideas can be cultivated through conversation with other people. And there's ways that you can, there, there's ideas that they have that should be cultivated and tended through you, right? Um, and I think that the legacy maybe is like creating a space that thrives on that, right? So, um, you know, having an, an ED is huge and that I think we recognize that there is actually, this, there's this room for this other specialist. There's the person that can run a nonprofit and raise money and develop strategic plans and cultivate a board and do all these things because we have experience just like all of our other specialists on the team and I think maybe a legacy project is having that idea and growing it as much as you can and putting the best people in place to, to attend it take it to the next level so yeah I feel like this is a good place to be. Um, it's weird not to have days that are full of meetings every single day. <laughs> um, I'm also on sabbatical, so it's like you know, seventy-five percent less meetings than last year. <laughs> so I think that's good. We also have been talking with Yola and the audio team about um, oh my gosh, a twenty-year anniversary which would be in 2025. The archives team and Yola are really excited about doing um, like an organizational archiving project. So looking at how all of the administrative structures have shifted, um, creating narrative around that, also organizing it in a way that can be sort of a model, but also um, an historical document unto itself. Um, and also, like an administrative archive. So the administrative archive looking at all the processes and then also an org-wide archive looking at how the org itself has changed. But having, you know, these two things kind of create one document that, yeah, is a history of BLT, which is interesting. I mean, yeah, it is funny to say that my medium is email and meetings. <laughs> but, um, you know, there is the administrative art, right? And there's also arts administration. Um, but I think, yeah, the question of how, how to document those processes is really interesting to me. What does it look like? How have things changed? 
Yeah, if there was a way to go into Google and look historically about how your file structures have changed in the past two years, um, that's like incredibly nerdy, but it's so exciting to see like, oh, wow, this is so much more logical to have this way and this way and this way, and this is a shared folder, but right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You said to me earlier, like, the first question that you ask at Black Lunch Table is how are you commonly mm. misperceived, um, if I'm that correctly? And, you know, you mentioned that earlier in terms of kind of that being a starting point for mm. you and Heather Hart's conversation and collaboration. So if you don't mind sharing kind of what are some of the questions that are asked at Black Lunch Table of the people who are invited and then also, how do you come up with those questions? Obviously, you know, research, um, but yeah. Yeah, there is research and there is also, um, there's also a set of questions that we have tried to include at every table. I'm opening a little bag of cards here. Um, okay, here we go. Here's the ones from the Earth's table. How do we continue to critique the institution while hiding in plain sight? Does a sense of civic responsibility affect formal decisions made in your studio? Is it possible to make artwork that's not tied to notions of identity or legacy? This one always gets a lot of conversation. Discuss support systems for your art practice. So you also have to keep in mind that these are questions that are asked in Brooklyn and Chicago, but also in like Boise and Greensboro, North Carolina. And everyone has something to say about how they support themselves. How is cultural memory passed down through the generations? Discuss legacy, intergenerational advocacy and mentorship. How do you maintain spiritual, physical, and mental well-being as an artist or arts administrator? Describe the local arts community and how you and your work relate to it. Discuss ideas for ensuring equity and compensation. Um, some of these questions used to be more specific. I think this one used to be about um, diversity hires in academia, or there was also a question about survey shows as well. Um, what kind of public art do you find valuable here? This one also gets a lot of responses. Discuss the spectrum of artists who co-opt aspects of Black culture for personal gain. We used to also have a question about Rachel Dolezal, but we took it out because we don't want the entire audio to be about Rachel Dolezal, which it will be. Um, white gatekeepers <laughs> for Black cultural producers. And uh, discuss the local gallery roster and museum record. Um, do they reflect the city's demographic? That one always gets a lot too. Who writes our art histories? Discuss self or community-led authorship and archiving. This one is a fun one. What does it mean to identify as Black? Um, could you do your work anywhere else in the world? What keeps you here? And again, a question that goes kind of everywhere. Like, why do you live in New York where your rent is $4,000 a month? People have reasons. <laughs> Who else would you like to see at one of these tables? 
what would their voice contribute to the conversation? That's also something we always ask. And then the um, people's table ones are more sociopolitically geared. How has your community changed since you became part of it? Let's maybe we can talk about gentrification if you want, or if not, talk about microaggressions, um, historical legacies defining race and class that are unique to this area. How is Black life part of your daily life? And of course, the people's table are everybody from the community. What monuments are in your neighborhood? Whose history do they represent? And then we with the ones that are more specific to a place that we do do research on. Here's an example, one from Canada. So Pope Francis recently toured Canada, apologizing for the abuses waged by missionaries against indigenous youth at residential schools. Discuss apologies and reparations. <laughs> what prevents coalitions from forming between local communities? Discuss possibilities for defunding the police and unarmed mediation in our communities. How has political polarization affected you and your community? What forms of self-segregation exist today? There's always questions about K-12 education and the rising cost of education. How do you support Black-owned businesses? Um, carding, which is another Canadian one. Um, yeah, and then there's always like a blank ones. So in case like if we missed anything and you guys spent the whole time talking about this other thing, write it in. So yeah, so we cover kind of the gamut and you know, it's another way that uh, audio team is really integral to the, the process. That yeah, the whole project is that you know they spend hours listening to these conversations, right? And they're like, oh, they picked that card. That's <laughs> how they get hated. Um, or they picked that card and like, wow, that was a rather tame conversation compared to everyone else's from that card. Um, and I think also thinking about how they are doing the metadata tagging as well. You know, it could be that. Yeah, three different tables have picked the same card, but what you're talking about is something unique. Um, I think also about how that affects tagging those conversations, right? So it would be easy to just go through and say that this is about this question, but um, they're really invested in being nuanced and also capturing the energy of the table. So, yeah. Should we? Talk about something else. Not talk about something else. Talk about, I guess, specifically like a transition from like black lunch table, you thinking through kind of organizational practices and stuff, and then how that relates to your broader practice and our practice and like data collection and archiving. Yeah. Um could be. I mean uh, I think it's a it may be a whole other conversation one way that it could be related in a positive way would be um, in 2020 in the midst of everything that was happening in the world um, I got an email from another faculty member and there were it was an email to black faculty um, requesting a meeting to talk about ways to support all of the concerns and critique that had been lobbied at the administration by black students 
how do we support them? Um, and so it's myself, Keen Whitehead, uh, Shani, Nicolene Holloway, Andres Hernandez, and Leah Gibson, who's in art therapy, and AJ McLennan. Um, and we met frequently to talk about what kind of letter we were going to write. Um, we wrote a letter, which is the Black Futures letter. But that happened. But I mean, our meetings were, <laughs> were, were a lot of sharing space, um, primarily. Um, and also, we made this thing happen. Um, but a, I think about that as an ethic, as a way to build conversation, consensus, community, and also do the work um, as it relates to Black Lunch Table. Um, that the you know checking in and acknowledging the space that we're sharing and holding that space in advance of getting into whatever the work is, is as a, or maybe more than important than the work at hand. It was also about having a, a place to, I don't know, just to share updates, to share gossip, to share information about the administration, to um, vent, <laughs> to be heard, right? Um, and to know that, that that place was also for that, right? Um, I don't know, I feel like I learned a lot from watching how other people create space and how other people hold space and, um, and invite kind of participation that ensures that everyone feels they can be heard and feels that there are no non-questions. But yeah, I, I think um, I'm also interested in how these spaces exist despite institutions and for an institution to be held accountable or to be worth anything, it requires the existence of those spaces too. There, there has to be the collective of people that are somehow invested in the institution who continually hold the institution to account. Right? Um, and it's exhausting. <laughs> and as I am on sabbatical right now, I was talking to some friends who are faculty and in other institutions. I'm like, I'm already thinking about how I'm going to come back and how I'm not going to come back. How do I participate and not participate as a citizen of this institution? Like, it's I, I can't participate in a way that isn't fully engaged, but I also can't be completely worn out like I was for the last. <laughs> I can't come back like that. I just, um, I, I don't think it's um, sustainable. So yeah, I guess also those conversations are about again, collectively understanding how people can participate and to what degree they are capable of participating. Right. Um, I ran for Senate that fall and, and, and Senate 
And while I was on the break just now, I was reading an email asking if I would be considered a nomination for chair of Set It. It's like, I think two years ago, definitely. This year, no, I don't want that life for myself or my child or my studio. Nope. <laughs> that was a very long answer. Um, Heather and I contributed an essay to a book called Out of Place, which is um, a project conceived of by Zoe Charlton and Tim Dude, who are in Maryland. Um, and our text, it begins with, our relationship to the institution has always been fraught. Um, and it's a kind of a meditation on our reliance as artists and nonprofit directors about our position of always relying on some relationship with the institution but being deeply skeptical of institutions generally. Um, it is an essay that is also a meditation on this idea of hiding in plain sight. So you're an insurgent in the institution. And it's also uh, musing on what we were doing. We were building another institution or rebuilding an organization. Is that different? How do we not um, replicate the same structures that we're attempting to dismantle? Um, and in our other essay, which is in the Wikipedia 20, which is, is also a critique on that project and on the Wikimedia project uh, at large, which you know, the Wikipedia project intends to be as democratically authored and maintenance uh, public encyclopedia. However, when the encyclopedia is largely written by white cis men from Western countries, um, how democratic is that? And when the encyclopedia is written by people who have education, time, and don't mind taking agency for themselves to tell people what facts are. <laughs> how democratic is that? When how many people in this country don't have high-speed internet or don't have access to libraries? How democratic is that? And when, you know, one of the things that we've really pushed as a project is what is considered notable. Um, it used to be that artists, in order to be considered notable, had to have at least two museum shows. <laughs> and, and, you know, a sufficient amount of coverage and um, noteworthy journals in order to be considered notable. Now, we think about who gets museum survey shows, politics of the art world, who is included and who is discorded. It gets really complicated to include anybody. Right? Um, so I feel like that has been successful. So I guess all of this is to say, you know, we're thinking about who is informing the structure of the institutions that we participate or choose not to participate in and how we as artists can force, encourage, help push catalyze a different kind of thinking around those structures right? and how much of that work we want to do ourselves 
I saw that you were in um, Citing Black Geographies. Oh, yeah. A show curated by Romy Crawford at Richard Gray Gallery, was in Chicago and then in New York. I'm just wondering if maybe that could be an opportunity to talk about like one of your works specifically. Yeah. Um, and then also I kind of wonder what space this is that has been created for you in this particular exhibit. I'm just interested in kind of you talking about how like black people can make space for one another, like particularly in these separate institutions. And it seems like maybe this exhibition was such a space. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of incredible to be included in that show. Um, so the work that I have included in the show um, was originally shown last year at Columbia College. And I worked with Meg DeGood, who I love, um, for like a year or so, mostly it was just us having conversations or like we'd go meet at a playground and our children would run amok and we'd try to talk about art. Um, <laughs> and um, we worked on an essay together for MIT Thresholds, um, architecture magazine, um, which was really fun too. Um, wow, man, that project actually had been percolating for a really long time. So the work that's in the show is um, a uh, remaking of data visualizations, data portraits um, that were created on the occasion of the 1900 Paris exhibition. And I think that book, the series had been digitized all 65 of these plates plus all of the photographs have been digitized and put on the Library of Congress for open access in like 2016, maybe. And there was this big write up in Hyperallergic. I think around that time I was making these drawings of weather reports. I was like, man, I can't believe anybody would ever be interested in looking at those little visualizations of the weather that you see in local papers. I think they're beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, has anybody done anything like this? And of course, the hyperallergic article just came out. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, this, I'm validated. Um, <laughs> but maybe also there's something there too. Like these are from 100 years ago. How much have things actually changed? Um, and so I, I think back then, I had been in conversation with Nicole Carruth, who was at the McCall Center. And we'd been talking about doing a project. Um, she left the center. I left the project and did something completely different. And I think in conversation with Meg, we um, yeah, I think I, through conversation, I got excited about doing it again. Um, so I produced uh, 20 out of 65 drawings. And those were on view at Columbia College, but of course on view during a pandemic in a, an institution that was mostly closed. Um, so when Romy and I had coffee and she said that she had actually seen it, I was very surprised and excited. She's like, and I would like to include these in this show that's coming up at the Gray Gallery. Um, and I think, you know, largely because it's Romy. Um, and it's not 
sufficient to say that she is a visionary, <laughs> but I, I trust her vision. Um, and I was excited about um, the other work that was going to be in the exhibition too, and in her framing of the project. Um, so the work, um, it's called Exhibition of American Negroes Revisited. Um, the original was, of course, Exhibition uh, of American Negroes. Um, I have basically gone through a lot of census data, both contemporary and historical, to um, pull in new relevant data to reframe those data visualizations. There are a lot of places where the context needed to be changed. So there's a couple of plates that are uh, enslaved versus free people. And so I recontextualized that to mean um, incarcerated or people who are disenfranchised because of felony convictions um, in the incarcerated versus free. Um, Say there's one that's a statistic on the conjugal condition of American Negroes, which is, <laughs> which is interesting. So it says the conjugal condition of Black Americans. Um, and one thing that was, is interesting about that drawing is that um, as I was doing the research, I noticed that there's no visualization for divorce rates. Divorces just weren't reported, right? Or they weren't legal. Oh, yeah. Or, they weren't counted by the census. Um, another one that was interesting was the illiteracy one, which is now titled Literacy. Um, in 1979, that was the last year that um, the Department of Education counted literacy versus illiteracy in such a binary way um, in the past 40 years. Um, there's been more of a, a nuanced look at degrees of literacy, right? Which makes a whole lot more sense, but it's way harder to illustrate, right? The one that was on um, farmland, I also reframed with updated information about the approximate wealth lost by Black Americans in the past 80 years because of all of the racist ways that we have done <laughs> kicked off our own land or had land taken away or redlining or farm closures because of any number of reasons, right? But it was in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, yeah, so those are just some of the things. Um, I worked with a former grad of the print department who's an amazing painter um, who worked tirelessly to help <laughs> to help translate these, uh, these mock-ups that I did in Illustrator onto paper with gouache and colored pencil. So we're going to be working together again this year, which is exciting. Um, the other project that's related to data, I mean, I guess a lot of them are. I didn't really mean to get into data. It just kind of went that way. <laughs> um, my other project that I'm wrapping up this year is uh, it was originally called Irin Weiwai. Uh, she speaks the regular way. Um, Irin Weiwai is one of the original, I guess, Ojibwe words for a person of this region and how they speak. 
it is likely going to be called a murmuration. So a murmuration as in a, a flock of starlings. And that piece is the massive public artwork that is going in the T5 terminal at O'Hare. Um, in brief, it is a data visualization of 200 years of immigration to what is now called Illinois. Um, the support structure for it is a sort of abstracted map of waterways through the region as accounted by an indigenous person to a European map maker. And if you can imagine like a, a scatter dot graph showing different colors for different continents of origins and different sizes of these points for the numbers of people coming in from specific countries. Um, it's kind of like this kind of like a flock <laughs> that floats across 330 feet of space. <laughs> um, and I guess the, the other part that we're just wrapping up, mercifully coming to a close, is um, me and my studio assistant have been reaching out to approximately 80 different immigrant communities and getting quotes from them on what is considered home. Um, so thinking about home being here in Chicago and being home, some home in Iceland or home in Czech Republic or home in Korea. Um, and also thinking about what kind of what kind of words of welcome someone leaving or coming would want to see. And also taking into account the response or this, this moment of risk of surprise and feeling recognized at seeing words in Estonian in Chicago in the airport. Our Estonian community partners were really excited to be included. <laughs> like we don't see Estonian anywhere. This is so wonderful. Thank you. Um, and so those texts are going to be etched onto like a tenth of the desks. Um, and then the other part of that is going to be a companion website, so a digital version of it. So if you're walking through the airport and you want to know what countries are represented, you can scan the QR code and look at your phone and find out which countries are which, but then also get translations into English. Um, for now, it's just English. Hopefully 2.0 of other languages, but you'll be able to get translations to other languages of each of the desks. So. It's assumed that the vast majority of people passing through that space won't speak all 60 different languages, <laughs> um, which is probably a fair assumption. Um, when I did do a lot of thinking about how, how including that volume of foreign languages, if you're listening, I'm doing air quotes, uh, that volume of foreign languages, um, creates moments of opacity and inclusion, right? So while you can't read most of what is up there, those places where you can read it feel special. And I'm not really sure what comes next. Um, there are another, a couple other projects I'm thinking about revisiting, um, works related to gerrymandering. Um, there was a series of 35 drawings that I did Oddly enough, on my last sabbatical, <laughs> which <laughs> I guess that makes sense with the way that redistricting works. Um, 
that we're looking at the 35 most heavily gerrymandered congressional districts in the country. It's called um, literacy test Rorschach. So thinking about literacy tests and the ways in which black people have been disenfranchised um, historically, thinking that a, a Rorschach test is, is as good as any other test, counting soap bubbles on the bar of soap. The shapes themselves, they kind of look like they could be Rorschach tests. Um, and I know that we're undergoing another redistricting at present, so it would be a place to update some things too. Um, yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe a question for part two is like, how, how did I end up looking at data? I, I actually don't know. Maybe we should talk about that. Um, <laughs> I think it's not unrelated to previous work, which used a lot of text. Thinking about what is translated, what is left untranslated, what is made available um, to public as a fact. Um, truthiness. Um, yeah. So I've got one more question for you before you leave. Um, uh -huh. It's the only question that I ask everybody in these interviews. Um, did we talk about what you thought we would talk about? Or questions <laughs> for me, or is there anything that you'd like to say? I think the only thing that I would talk more about is materiality. Um, I, I, I'm not a painter. I, I do enjoy how painters have more license to talk about like the sensuousness of the paint and that they paint because they love painting. Like who else gets to talk about their materials that way? The problem is that I'm a painter and a ceramicist and and yeah. both of those materials, I feel like mm. we're allowed to talk about like the sensuality of mm -hmm. materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like printmakers, like information people, sculptors 100% could do it. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I, like, I feel like there's less, um, less constraints, right? Or maybe I put those constraints on myself. I feel like you need to talk about all of the concept and content up front, and then maybe we get into talking about the materiality. Like, why do you make your own ink? You can go to the store and buy ink. You also can buy paper these days, too. <laughs> you don't need to do it this way. Um, think about those things, but I don't really talk about them as much. Um, yeah. Um, Thanks uh, for asking all these questions. <laughs> yeah, thanks for answering them. Uh, and um, I'm glad that we have more time. Yeah, me too. <laughs>
A separate interview I had with Gina Valentine for Bomb Magazine will be released online and in print later this year. And A. Murmuration, Gina Valentine's installation at the Terminal 5 Passenger Level Concourse at Chicago O'Hare International Airport will also open later this year. You can find information about Gina Valentine and her work at ginavalentine.com. Links to what we spoke about today, as well as other interviews with people in the arts, are available on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva Duerden. The episode artwork was created by Julia Ratti, and the theme song was made by Alessandra Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week for my conversation with Cecilia Wee.